Hey guys, before we start this week's episode, I wanted to uh, mention a couple things really quickly. Um, firstly, happy holidays to everyone. Uh, thank you so much for supporting Drum History and listening to the show over the last, you know, however many years. If you just discovered it, thank you. If you've been listening since day one, uh, a huge thank you to you. So I hope everyone has had a great 2022, uh, as good as it can be. I guess everything's getting better each day. Next, I want to give a big shout out to my friend Jeremy Berman from Q Drums, who became a supporter of the show on Patreon, which he didn't need to do. I know he's going through a lot of stuff, but he said he really wanted to support the podcast and enjoys everything that um, I'm doing here, which means a lot, especially because of the situation he's in. So um, if you didn't hear his episode, just go back a few episodes uh, from this and you'll see the history of Q Drum Co um, with him and Max Qzor, and they did a great job. So um, check out Q Drum at QDrumCo.com to see everything they do. Uh, thanks to Jeremy for joining Patreon. If you want to join up and get a shout out, um, go to patreon.com slash drum history podcast, and you can see all the tiers and stuff like that. So next, my buddy, John DeChristopher, we've been talking about his awesome show, which is live from my drum room, which is the modern drummer podcast. Now he, he's linked up with modern drummer, which is awesome. And I'm really happy for him that it's going so well. Um, he's trying to focus a little more on YouTube. So I wanted to let people know um, go check out live from my drum room with John to Christopher on YouTube and go hit the subscribe button so you can keep up with everything he's doing. Uh, he's got more industry knowledge and stories than I think most people do who are doing interviews, certainly more than me, uh, with his experiences in this industry. So I'll put the link in the description for it, but go to YouTube if you're, uh, if you want and just subscribe to live from my drum room with John to Christopher. Let's hop in and learn about what it's like to work with buddy rich. Hello and welcome to the Drum History Podcast. I'm your host, Bart Vanderzee, and today I am honored to be joined by Howie Stolberg to talk about Buddy Rich and working and teching for Buddy Rich. Howie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Bart. Yeah, this is really cool. I mean, it's we've talked a few times before this, and I got to say, every time I've talked to you, it has been uh, some sort of incredible Buddy story, <laughs> <laughs> one after another. So I'm excited to have you on here. Um, Thank you. So... Uh, the information that I can throw out there at first is you worked with Buddy Rich um, from 1978-ish to 79, a little bit into 80, but um, right. how old were you then? I was uh, 79. I was born in 58, so I was 19, uh, 19 uh, 21. Wow. Okay. But I was a young, green kid. I didn't know nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not a drummer. Let's say, say, say that up front, because I think that it really Buddy does affect it. Liked that. He liked it because every guy that had the job before me said, teach me how to play drums, show me this, show me that. And I really did. I wasn't into it. I set up the drums. I could do that, no problem. But I wasn't into playing. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's there's something to that. That's, I think, a, I don't know. There's something huge to that where, yeah, Buddy just wants to do what he's doing. He doesn't want to be teaching everyone every single day. You want to be treated like a regular guy. Yeah. All right, Howie. Well, let's jump in here and I'm going to let you go because uh, with the technical thing, when I talk, it kind of dips you down. So if people don't hear me talk too much while you are, that's just for that reason. So we'll keep it nice and clean. But um, all right, Howie. So I think we should start with basically Buddy gets kind of a bad reputation for being um kind of a, a tough guy, uh, yeah. a hard guy, which we'll talk about that too. I think some of it's got 
there's plenty of stories that <laughs> like the tapes and all that, which will go to that. But um, before we get to the bad guy stuff, I think it's great to kind of defend him a little bit because he can't stand up for himself. So tell us some stuff about Buddy Rich being a really good guy and someone you had a really good time working for. Well, it was, it was one of the greatest experiences of my life. Uh, he treated me so well. We were the same height and weight. So he let me have all his old suits and clothes. And uh, we went to movies together. We walked the streets. Uh, I was in Oklahoma and I went to, I found a deli and I got myself a, a chocolate malted. And I said, let me bring Buddy one. And I got a $50 a week raise for that. You know, just because he liked, he loved me. He, we got, I loved him. He loved me. Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like he's, He's just that kind of like you got to show respect. And uh, the fact that you were like you mentioned to me on the phone that you were like almost more than just setting up the gear, which you would right. do. You were more of a valet kind of assistant to him. Right. Exactly. I would take care of his food, uh, his clothes, the backstage, whatever he wanted under the under the back drum. He wanted a, a bottle of Perrier. He wanted some. uh Towels on the back drum. On the bus, I had to keep Rolos, Twinkies, and a Perrier. That, that was his big thing. He loved them. We would practice karate in the hotel room. We would. Uh, he would hit me. He would, I had my hands up. He would do, do, do. Uh, his legs, forget about his legs. He had muscles in his legs from, the, from using the hi-hat and the bass drum. He... Uh, I can't say I can't say enough about the physical, uh, the physical whatever uh, stamina he had. Hmm. He would put me through the ringer. Yeah, I remember once uh, he was on stage and he was like, he wanted to tune his drum, so he yelled out, "Give me an A! Give me an A!" And one of the uh, one of the trumpet players said, "A." And he fired him on the spot. He said, here's your ticket. Go back to New York. You're done. Man. Do so, you think Do you think it was like sort of a... Was there ever an instance where Buddy would have found that... I mean, that is funny. But like, do you ever think he would have found that funny? Or was it like he caught him in the wrong day? Kind of a mood no, thing? Hey, that's all. Like he fired me a few times when he said... He asked me a question. And I said, yup. Instead of yes, he said, never yup me, bah, bah, bah. get out of here, you're done. Yikes. But a few minutes later, we're back, we're back in business. Yeah. Well, did you feel like you had to walk on eggshells around him or could you kind of relax? Uh, at times, yes. At times, it was just keep your mouth shut and don't say anything. You know, like we would be uh, at a party in Las Vegas, and uh, Sammy Davis Jr. was hosting it, and Sinatra was there, and Johnny Carson, and all the boys. And he introduced me to Sinatra, because they used to be roommates uh, back in the 40s. And he said, this is my boy. And Frank said, hey, how you doing, kid? And that was it. I didn't say I had too much respect for the guy. I wouldn't. There was no conversation. So, you know, because if you say the wrong thing around Buddy, you're done. Yeah. Which, 
I mean, I think in the world of music and recording studios and everything, there's sometimes we've, I've been around people where it's like, man, you should really stop talking. Like you're, you're like to certain people, it's like, you're talking too much and everyone's kind of thinking, man, this, this, this kid is talking too much. So you're smart to know when to close your mouth. I'm where I was too stoned and my mouth kept running and I said the wrong things and I got in trouble. So I had to learn how to just be calm, calm yep. down and learn whatever you can. Sure. Well, all right. So wait, why don't we back up real quick? And uh, I'd love to hear the story of how you got this job with Buddy Rich. How I got this job. Uh, my uncle was and Billy was Sid Bernstein and Billy Fields were partners in promoting and producing concerts. They were friends with Stanley Kay, who was his manager. And uh, I had dropped out of high school. I had nothing to do. The phone rings. And he says, you want to go on the road? I got nothing to do, you know. So uh, he said, um, yeah, I said, yeah. He said, well, pack a bag and go to the uh, the Paramount Hotel on 46th Street and 8th Avenue on Wednesday. This is Monday, he's calling me. On Wednesday, and you're going on the road. And we, we went at the hotel, the band and everything. We loaded up, and we went to pick up Buddy at Lincoln uh, Lincoln Towers, I think it was. Uh, and I just introduced myself. I said, yeah, how you doing, buddy? And he nodded, and I handed him a joint, and he was very happy. I don't think it's a secret that and a lot of famous actors and people at that time, I guess it was more controversial, but the fact that Buddy used, you know, marijuana and smoked weed and stuff. He, he, he didn't hide anything. Yeah. He he told me to hold everything. So in case anything happened, I would take the hit. <laughs> at least smart like that. I mean, but you're you're young and I say respectfully, probably at that point, kind of dumb enough to just do it because you're in the presence of a great of greatness exactly. to be like. And they, they said they'd take care of me. But it's like Paul McCartney got busted in Japan with pot in his bag. Why didn't he give it to a roadie? <laughs> yeah. I don't get it. No, it's interesting. Um, but, you know, I mean, Buddy doing that kind of stuff, which uh, I think is fine. And I've obviously I don't I think most people nowadays have no problem with it. It never seemed to slow him down. I mean, speed wise or anything. Not at all. He concentrated on it. He smoked before the before we did two forty five minute sets. Uh, smoked before the first set, and in between, he'd go on the bus, tighten up again, yell at the band a little, this and that, tell them who screwed up, who did this, who did that, and we'd go back and do the second set. So, no, nah, when he played, he he enjoyed it. Yeah. Buddy gets such kind of a, a, a weird reputation, but I'm coming at this from the angle of like, I love Buddy Rich. He's like, yeah, and you clearly do. And we're big, huge fans of his. And this isn't a thing where, you know, because I mean, I feel like do, people do kind of attack him sometimes and, and say like, you know, he's a mean guy. He's terrible. Oh, buddy. oh yeah, he, uh, he could be a hard ass. No, without a doubt. Yeah, but we both love him. But so uh, before we get to the we'll switch gears to kind of the tapes and hearing some of the stories about that stuff. What I'd like to hear, Howie, is maybe like run us through like any given day. Like, what was it like, you know, first thing in the morning to night? What was like, what would a day with Buddy Rich be like? If it was a day off, I remember in Chicago, we were 
he was at the Ritz Carlton or whatever. The band was at some Fleabag Hotel on Rush Street. Uh, me and him would walk around Michigan Avenue and we'd go to the movies. We went to see uh, High Anxiety by Mel Brooks. <laughs> he loved it. He loved to laugh. He enjoyed it. Uh, and he loved when people recognized him on the street. He had no problem signing autographs. In Chicago, we always went to Miller's Pub on Wabash and Adams. He loved the ribs there. And he would take the whole band. As soon as we pulled into Chicago, the bus would go to the uh, restaurant. Everybody would get out, and we'd have a party in the back. That's awesome. It's a, it's a, day, a day with Buddy was fun. It really yeah. was. Well, like, all right, then getting to the gig. So you guys would pull in, you'd go to the restaurant, and then from there, would he, like, kind of peel off and go? Okay. At a gig, we played a lot of colleges, which was great for me because as the bus pulled up, there was always nine or ten guys outside that want to help. They, had, they would help carry the stuff, mm. the monitors, the speakers, the wires, the, the microphones. The, well, nobody... I wouldn't let anybody touch the drums, that's for sure. But uh, they would help. It was uh, then doing the gig, he'd tell, like, the band had a book about that thick with songs that they had to remember. And I carried all those books and the band stands. So it was a lot of work. It really was. But I loved every minute of it because it got me to other roadie jobs. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that about having like, you know, you know, you pull up to a college and there's an army of guys who want to help because, yeah, of course you want because those people then are probably, you know, in their 60s and 70s telling a story of how they carried Buddy Rich's like speakers or something. You know what? Yeah. But you know, you know what? I'm trying to figure out there's probably maybe 40 guys in the world that had this job. Maybe 50, I don't know. It was the highlight of my my musical career. Because I, I would go to concerts when I was young. Sid Bernstein would get me tickets for every concert in Madison Square Garden. I've seen Zeppelin three times. I've seen Tall, like Stones. I've seen everything that came into Madison Square Garden. So then, like I said, you want to go on the road? Sure. I love music. And I wasn't into the big band uh, jazz, but I got into it and I still listen to on YouTube, Buddy Richard the Hague. And I still know every song, what's going to happen, how it's going to end, and all the guys in the bandstand. Did Buddy ever like bust your chops? Because he was usually very vocal about not liking rock and roll. Did he, you guys ever talk about that? Uh, no, you know what? He liked, he liked music. Like, I remember Steve Marcus was on the bus. And he had an acoustic guitar. And he was playing uh, mariachi, Malaguena, you know. Mm-hmm. And Buddy said, I want to learn that before this tour is over. Okay, got to do it. Never did. Yeah. You know, at the moment, they wanted to do it. But no, he would bust my chops. He would hide things on me. I, I had to keep a carton of Kent cigarettes. That's funny. That's what he smoked. Wow. You were the carrier, you know? Yeah. I carried everything. I mean, under my seat on the bus, his bus, his seat was on the right and I was on the left. I had a big cooler 
with all his stuff in it. Uh, up above, I had whatever he, whatever he needed, I learned, and when he wanted it, you yeah. know. And on the side of the stage, when I'm standing there, I watched him do moves that I never saw before in my life. I mean, I've seen him on uh, Johnny Carson, but uh, we did, I just seen him, he, he would smile at me, and that made him happy. That's awesome. So I, I think that it's come up on a few episodes about the stories of Buddy, like kind of, uh, you know, giving drum sets away to people and things like that and just kind of would go through a lot of drum sets. He did a lot of clinics. I'd never seen him give away drum, uh, a drum, a drum sticks was my thing. I carried 40, 50 drums, sets of drums. He, he used the uh, number fives. So I, I handed them out to fans. But he would run clinics for the kids. He would teach them how to do it. He had patience with the kids. That's without a doubt. But like I said, with adults, if he liked you, he liked you. If he didn't, <laughs> you're yeah. in a lot of trouble. Well, like they did a, a Seinfeld. Exactly. So let's get into that. And I mean, as we go, if more like good guy buddy stuff pops into your head, because it obviously sounds like the guy was uh, a tough boss, but you you loved working for him. But as you just he was mentioned, a friend of mine. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, that's really that's really cool because you guys did have. I mean, if you were twenty one, Buddy was about sixty one at this point. So, I mean, you guys had about a forty year age difference. But I think your yeah. love of music probably. Well, we know, had right? a love of baseball too. We both loved the Yankees, and we went to like Wrigley Field. We went to Anaheim Stadium. We saw Dodger Stadium. We would go to different stadiums around the. Uh, around the uh, country. And you said on the phone to me earlier, didn't you say you and Buddy went to a baseball game here in Cincinnati? Yeah, Cincinnati, definitely. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we were playing uh, a college, and I read in the paper there's a game today. We were off, and I said, you want to go? He said, yeah. And I called up the uh, public relations office, and I got tickets. It's awesome knowing I that. Would, I mean, I would do that a lot. I would call, like one time, we were in Toronto, and the bus wouldn't start, so we had to stay for a couple of days. And that night I read Emerson, Lake, and Palmer were playing at the Maple Leaf Garden. So I asked Buddy if he wanted to go, and a couple of the guys, maybe eight or, eight or ten of us, and I called public relations, and I got seats, and then backstage. because course, uh, Buddy was friends with Carl Palmer. So I got to meet Keith Emerson and Carl Palmer. Uh, Greg Lake. It's kind of that thing where, I don't know, hanging out with a celebrity like that, you you got such a cool opportunity to see this stuff and, and how it works for someone at the top of their game, where you get in every, everywhere for free and other celebrities want to talk to you. It's unbelievable. Definitely. Like uh, in New Orleans, we were there for three weeks and we only played three nights, I think. So the rest of the band, on days off, we would go down to... Uh, French Quarter, Bourbon Street. Yep. And they fit in with the bands. So I got to hang out with everybody. And Wow. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Bachman Turner Overdrive. Uh, he wanted to buy Buddy drinks, but he wasn't drinking at the time. He, never, he didn't really drink. On the bus, he would have a bottle of wine once in a while. Yeah, we would share. But That's interesting. He wasn't really a drinker that I saw. It was yeah. not anything else. He was just just uh, marijuana. 
I think it's healthier. I mean, I think that's, again, if this was today, there would be like no problem. Not that there was a problem then, but like, I mean, but even then you look at those days, I think of like Carl Sagan and these like huge celebrities who would be pro, you know, marijuana. And it's like, yeah, whatever. Who cares? It worked for him. That's, that's cool to hear. But you were getting into it before. So let's, all right, buddy, just to, so to make sure we get to it, let's talk about, uh, you mentioned before Seinfeld, the tapes uh, of Buddy Rich are obviously kind of what began, I, I think, b- beyond just like, you know, verbal stories of people telling each other that really got out there in the world, the whole attitude. Now we're going to hop over and listen to about two and a half minutes of Jerry Seinfeld talking about how the Buddy Rich tapes influenced him and many comedians and ended up actually being a part of the show Seinfeld. There's this legendary thing amongst comedians and comedy writers of these bootleg Buddy Rich tapes. Buddy Rich was very famous for um, doing shows, and he was a, a drummer, and he had this big band, and he would do the shows, and he would get on the bus, and he would excoriate all the players in the band for playing too loud. And somebody in the back of the bus, his tour bus, one day, turned on the tape recorder and 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 recorded these absolutely um, florid, inspired rants of pure rage and, and frustration and, and hostility at the, at the players. And I know almost all of it by heart, as along, a lot, along with uh, a lot of my friends. And there are three lines in the series where the, I just took lines from those tapes one of them is Kenny Banya is following me and he's getting laughs off of me. I was going to throw the set. and throw the set, I was going to bomb. And the line was, and then we'll see how he does up there without all the assistance. You're not. That's right. I'm taking a dive. You're throwing the set? I'm laying down. Then we'll see how he does up there without all the assistance. <laughs> and that was a Buddy Rich line. He was going to threaten to turn off the microphones off of all the saxophone players. And he said, then we'll see how you do up there without all the assistance. And the other one, there's two others. The other one is George in the opposite episode when he confronts the guy who's talking too loud in the movie theater. And he says to him, would you like to step outside and I'll show you what it's like. And if I have to tell you again, we're going to take it outside and I'm going to show you what it's like. You understand me? No one could write that. Only Buddy Rich could think of threatening someone with physical violence in that kind of terminology. Why don't we step outside and I'll show you what it's like. And the other one, which is my favorite, which I conveniently left for last, is Frank Costanza in the coffee shop when he tells the story of his long-lost love from Korea meeting her father and how the father didn't like him and how he said in Korean, this guy... This is not my kind of guy. <laughs> the father would look at me and say, which means this guy, this is not my kind of guy. <laughs> and those three lines are taken directly from Buddy Rich. This week's episode is brought to you by Dr. Matt Brennan and his book, Kick It, A Social History of the Drum Kit. 
If I had to pick one book about the history of the drums to take on a desert island, it would absolutely be Kick It. This book is extremely fun to read. It's a comprehensive look at companies and brands like the, the dynasties of Ludwig and Zildjian. Uh, you get to look at jazz players like Gene Krupa and Max Roach. He talks about rock stars like Ringo Starr and Keith Moon and many, many drummers along the way. It is full of great information. Here's a couple quick quotes from some famous drummers who are praising this book. Bill Bruford said it's the most comprehensive book on the topic, compulsory reading for the inquisitive drummer. Nick Mason from Pink Floyd said, if you're really interested in drumming, this is the one book that you need. Modern Drummer said, Brennan pulls off something remarkable. He makes a deeply investigated and well-sourced history of musicians and drum manufacturers a page turner. And I completely agree with that. It's very fun to read. If you want to get your hands on a copy of Kick It! A Social History of the Drum Kit, you can order it from your local independent bookstore, or you can order it from Rob Cook's Rebeats shop for $30. That's rebeats.com, R-E-B-E-A-T-S.com slash books, or get it off Amazon or any major online bookseller in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. So thank you to Dr. Matt Brennan for sponsoring this with his great book, Kick It! A Social History of the Drum Kit. Don't mess with buddy. If you did mess with them on the outside, then I'd have to get involved. You know, I'd have to break it because I, I buddy, I was like a, like a bulldog with him. If Jeez. he didn't want to be bothered, I would block it. You know, do me a favor. He would, people would come to the table, and he's got the ribs and his mouth, and people would ask for autographs. And I was like, do me a favor. Come back later. We we're having dinner. Mm-hmm. He never said no, but... The timing was wrong. Yep, I can totally see that. That's um, you almost see that in movies where someone's eating dinner and they come up to them. It's just like I feel like sometimes people get so excited or like, well, I'm leaving now. I I want to get a picture or an autograph of Buddy Rich. I need to get it now. And it's like, uh, no, just <laughs> yeah. If it was a kid that was just learning drums, maybe or definitely don't don't talk to him in the bathroom. I'll tell you that right now. Really, that's we'll interesting. Around, we'll turn around and take a leak on your shoes. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So um, you mentioned to me that there was one point um, on um, the tapes where you were yelled at personally. What was that part? Yeah, it was um, the the trombone player. I forgot his name. The bold guy would do a tape recorder. But he had one thing where he was yelling at the band and the door to the bus was open. And he says, close that freaking door. And he was talking to me. So I had to go close the door. But uh, he yelled at me because I was having a Heineken during a show. And shouldn't do that. Mm. You know, yeah. what if a drum head breaks in the middle of a show? What if this happens? What if a microphone falls down? What if, what if a wire comes out? He says, you, uh, you drink later? You want to smoke later? Not during the show. I get that. I got in trouble in college. I was like interning with someone where they would do like uh, concerts. They would put on concerts and I was supposed to be like watching the door or something. And I ended up just sitting there for a couple minutes having a beer with a friend at the bar. And the guy came up to me and was like, just nice. But he was like, you're not being, I wasn't being paid, but you're not, you're not supposed to be doing that. And it's like, all right, I get it. I would do stuff like that too. When I was a waiter, I would sit down at the table with people, you know, (laughs) you're not supposed to do that. (laughs) No. 
So uh, another thing I want to talk to you about and get your uh, kind of input on is Buddy on Johnny Carson because he was a return guest. It was very, you know, Ed Shaughnessy and, and, and the whole band. It was just a really special thing to have Buddy on there. Right. Well, Buddy had an open invitation. Anytime he wanted to go on, uh, on The Tonight Show, no problem. Because he was that entertaining. He would sit in with, uh, with, the, with Doc Severinsen and the band. He would do... Uh, uh, actually, he taught... Uh, he gave lessons to Johnny Carson on the drums. We went to Johnny Carson's house, and he had a drum set, and he was teaching them how to do that. Johnny was a good nobody, drummer. Nobody can do what Buddy did. Buddy had finesse. He had, he had a gentle touch with the drums. The other guys, like I said, Krupa, Belson, even John Bonham on Zeppelin were bangers. I mean, they were great drummers. But they were bangers, I call them. Buddy was smooth. Well, with the Carson thing, and then I love the pranks that they would pull on each other, and like, and just it was so silly. And you could tell they were really good friends. Were you ever there when they did any like the you know the the what wax paper drum heads they would punch through or anything like that? Uh, there was once at Carson's house. It wasn't on the show, but he had the uh, snare drum, almost like a paper drum head. And one shot, Buddy went right through it. Because he did that on the on on air, so maybe he was maybe he was testing for the real uh, for the show, you know. But uh, what I liked about doing Carson and Merv Griffin and Mike Douglas show, we did them all. But uh, there was union guys, so I didn't have to touch nothing. They would That's unload nice. the bus. They would set up his drums, and all I had to take care of was Buddy and his clothes. Hmm. You know. Mel Torme would show up at, uh, on Mike Douglas. And Buddy was in a sweatshirt because we just pulled into town. And then Mel Torme came out and they did Love for Sale, which is a great video. If you, if you get that on YouTube, Mel Torme, Buddy Rich doing Love for Sale. I love Mel. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, um, one thing that I, I didn't even think to ask, but I want to mention um, is there's... Uh, there's some cool video of it. I forget on what performance. It was way earlier. It was way before when you were with him. But um, Buddy was a good singer and would perform as a singer. Yeah. Yeah, he could did sing. You, did you guys, did he ever do that in his later years? Um, I mean, not, not, I can't remember seeing it. No, not later years. But like in the room at night or in the day, he would he would sing. The guy had a voice. He was talented. Yeah. Did Buddy ever mention anything to you about um, his, like, incredible childhood of, like, coming up on vaudeville and, you know? Yeah, yeah, his... yeah. I guess it was about, he was baby traps. Yeah. It was like not being a slave, but he was, like, not forced into it. And he just got to, he had the talent. He was, like, he loved it. But it was like, uh, it was like uh, boot camp mm -hmm. or training. You don't quit. You do it. Buddy was not a quitter. If something didn't work, fix it. He liked the vaudeville. He loved when he was with uh, uh, Dorsey and uh, and Sinatra. Was it Dorsey? Uh, he was with Dorsey. I, I I should say up front there. I love Buddy, but there are guys like Sean Martin and Brooks Tegler and a lot of Buddy historians who know more of the details of every band and every era. I'm more of just right. like a broad. I love Buddy and think he's amazing. But there, there's, there's some great resources for super narrow Buddy um, 
you know, content. But I think this is just a cool, broad, broad look at him. Right. I just, I got into the music because that's what I had to listen to every day. Sure. So I knew every note, every what was coming up, who was doing the solo, because I had the spotlight of the gels. I had to know who was going to do a solo here and there and here and there. So, wow, it was. That's I learned. I learned. That's crazy. I mean, so I was, you, I was you no were doing Brody. I'll tell you that right now. Listing things was not my bag. Backstage handling the band, handling uh, Buddy. That was my thing. So Steve Peck, the manager, had to do a lot more work than he thought. Yeah. Well, I mean, you'd be now more like, I mean, I feel like now there's more like defined roles of like someone, what you're doing would be like, it would be more handler or whatever, as opposed to like one person who's doing, supposed to do 20 roles and then it gets kind of blurred. Right, right. Um, yeah. I, I was the only roadie. Now, understand that. I was with uh, Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons. And Jay and the Americans, we did the tour, and we had seven or eight of us or nine of us. Everybody had a specific role. Hmm. With the average white band, it was the same thing. We had, I was with Sandy Toronto, who was the uh, guitar player, and we had a, a few gigs, but there was, a, there was a bunch of roadies. The problem went with that, I didn't want to go to sleep because I might miss something. Yeah. I was having a party on the road. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that was a fun time, uh, you know, and those those are probably more your scene as opposed to uh, Buddy's probably more of like, I mean, he's a legend, but those guys are probably more your like rock and roll young guy kind of like vibe. The average age of his band, the average age of his band was like 25. Yeah, they were all young guys. So I would hang <laughs> out with them. We would go shopping in a different town. We do this. We do that. So I got to know them, too. Definitely an incredible experience. I learned how to handle myself backstage when I was very young, from like 11 or 12, being backstage. I remember uh, my cousin Billy Fields and Sid Bernstein, they did uh, uh, Sly Stone Got Married at Madison Square Garden. Me and my brother were like about seven feet from them. Wow. You know? So we had to be... Like you said, keep your mouth shut. Listen, don't talk unless you're spoken to. So, and the, I mean, at times I could, I could, I got to be a big mouth. I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. But with Buddy, I can, I could get away with certain things because I was who I was. Yeah, you were a young guy, and it sounds like he, you know, he understood that and appreciated it. What caused you guys to um, part ways in 1980? Ah, Stanley Kay, who was Buddy's the assistant drummer early on, and then was his manager. Uh, he had a son called, uh, his name was Craig Morton, and he wanted to go on the road. So the manager's son wanted the job. Eh, you're done. Thanks a lot for your uh, help. Yeah, but... I mean, if you said 40 or 50 guys did your job over Buddy's career, then it sounds like y a year to two years is kind of the lifespan of that job. Right. Well, I'm sure there was guys that were a couple of, I don't know, 40. I'm just, I picked sure. the number that I made it. Uh, 
there are sure those guys with him for a few years, three or four. There's some guys with him six months. Mm-hmm. You know, it depends on the personality. For sure. I got that we liked each other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, speaking of liking each other, you mentioned before that like Buddy had a lot of friends who were like famous and all that stuff. Of course, we got to talk about like his relationship with guys like Gene Krupa, where I think they were, you know, to the public would be portrayed as like they're battling their enemies. But we yeah, all know that they were good, that they were good friends. There's a rivalry there. But you know what? They still played baseball together. Uh, yeah, but he was good friends with Krupa, without a doubt. And also Louis Belson. Which Louis and Gene are just infamously nice guys. So it's kind of a funny, you know, big difference in their in their uh, you know public personas the between the three of them. Yeah, like I said, Buddy had, uh, was out there. Louis <laughs> Belson was quiet. Uh, and Krupa, I had no idea because that's way before my time. I watched yeah. the video. He would smile. You you know. Everybody had their own style, but I remember Buddy did a, um, he got a cage and the drum set went up around and round and round. He was strapped in and he did a solo for like three or four minutes. It was great. They had, I think it was on Carson. They had, it was set up where the drum set would spin around on the board and he was strapped in and he would do a, a great solo. That's like some like Tommy Lee stuff that you think of like in the 80s or something yeah. like that. Or Well, I guess that's kind of oh, getting closer to that time. Way before. Interesting. Like I said, I had to travel with Buddy's uh, VCR. He wanted the VCR in the room, so I had a big case with the VCR in it, and I had to bring it to every hotel room that he was in. I dropped it a couple of times, and he looked at me, but we knew the case would. It was one of those... Uh, studio cases so yeah. nothing happened but he looked at me like seriously <laughs> well i mean we laugh now but i've always heard it was this was before my time but i've heard vcrs back then could be like you know two thousand dollars or something like that yeah 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 it was expensive it was way expensive and then the tapes you know it's uh yeah the back in the day back in the day I remember calculators were $125 when Texas Instruments first came out with them. Man, well, yeah. What would uh, what would Buddy like watch? What were his favorite tapes to watch? Uh, he loved action movies. Chuck Norris, uh, Bruce Lee. He loved mm. Bruce Lee. Uh, that makes sense. He liked comedies too. He liked to laugh. Like I said, it depends. Uh, uh, who would like seventy? He loved Richard Pryor. We watched George Carlin. He was amazed at the, the, the things that this guy would come up with. But, uh, but he had a good mind. He, had a, he, had a, he kept his mind going. He didn't stop. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's awesome. And the whole like action thing makes perfect sense with his martial arts background. I mean, it's like, of course he likes those guys, you know? Yeah. But yeah, after he watched it, he would start playing with me. I would take a couple of hits in the shoulder, beat my mom, slap in the head. I took a lot of stuff. Yeah, but uh, as it sounds like you've said, you wouldn't trade it for the world. It sounds like one of the best experiences no, you could without have. A, without a doubt. You know, it's something that I could always look back. I mean, it's 40-something years later, 
and I'm still watching it on YouTube. It, yeah, it brings back memories for me. I'm 64 years old right now. You know, I'm in a rehab center for my foot. You know, I lost all my toes due to a bacterial infection. So I got my iPad and I go to Buddy Richard the Hague and I'll just watch it all day. But then yeah. I watch the Stone I watch the Stones in concert too. Yeah. A nice mix of stuff. I mean, you were a pretty young guy then. Like I I just it's interesting to think like your parents or your mom or your dad, they would have been like, you know, Buddy would have been like their generation's kind of like, you know, star. What what did they think? My father was born in twenty seven and my mother was born in twenty nine. So they were ten years younger than him. Right? Yeah. Yeah. My mother told me her advice was if a magazine falls on the floor, pick it up. Amazingly, I was on the bus and a magazine dropped on the floor and I rushed over to pick it up. You know, sweep the yeah. floor, clean this up, keep the bus neat. I had to keep the bus neat. You know, we didn't want to live in a pigsty. We did a lot yeah. of traveling on that bus. There was 15 mm. guys in the band as Steve Peck was the manager and the bus driver. So there was 18 of us on that bus and Buddy. Was it sort of a leave Buddy alone on the bus type situation, or would he kind of... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. You could tell. I'd ask him a question, and he'd, like, put his hand up. Like, talk to the hand. You know, yeah. before that was around. He was like... Mm. And he had a lot of faces... A lot of facial expressions to, to me that I could tell yeah. what he wanted. Man, uh, you know, and a life, a full life, of like nonstop doing that and buses and performing. I'm sure it made him a little bit, you know, like some of that attitude. I'm sure that makes anyone a little cranky. He was on the road 10 months out of the year. He took off for Christmas and another month. I forgot what I think it was Kathy's birthday. I'm not sure. But the rest of the time, Marie went shopping. He told me Bloomingdale's would call, see if she's sick when she didn't show up one day. Wow. You know, that was Marie. Marie was a sweet. I love Marie. And mm. Kathy was the, the, the whole family was a pleasure. They lived on the 27th floor, I do believe, of uh, Lincoln Towers. And uh, I was up there many times bringing him clothes from the cleaners. And uh, I did what I, I did what needed to be done. He had two sisters in Brooklyn. Uh, when I was with him, he had two sisters in Brooklyn. And uh, uh, Kathy was uh, when she started singing with uh, Stan Getz's daughter. They backed the band. Stan Getz and Buddy backed the band. I don't know how much uh, how many gigs they did, but I remember yeah. in Chicago, we were in Colorado. When they decided to get together, Sam Getz was another sweetheart. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, he seems like a nice guy. All right, Howie, man, this has been incredible, and I'm just honored that you are uh, taking the time while you're recovering from what's with what's going on with your foot to um, uh, share the stories with me. And I think this is just the kind of information that you literally, uh, unless you talk to someone else who had the same job as you, but even then, it wouldn't be the same because you had a very specific time and relationship that only you could have had with Buddy. So I appreciate right. you um, being here. I don't know what relationships the other roadies had, but I know what I did. And I did the right thing. 
I tried, I tried, I tried my best. And what I didn't know, I learned and I, I messed up a lot, without a doubt. You can get away with a lot when you're young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Howie. Well, thank you for being here. And, and uh, well, first off, thanks to everyone who's listening and enjoyed this. And uh, and like I said, it's all just a positive, I hope, thing about Buddy. And just to get a glimpse into the, the you know someone who worked with him. And uh, you can you can very much tell that this is like uh, the a a golden achievement in Howie's life as it should be, and he can you know fondly look back on it. So lots of respect and love to Buddy and his family. So um, yeah, oh, on yeah. that note, Howie, thank you for being here, my friend. Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to share my experiences with Buddy Rich. It was a pleasure. It was a highlight of my life, and I'm glad to share it with the audience. If you like this podcast, find me on social media at Drum History, and please share, rate, and leave a review. And let me know topics that you would like to learn about in the future. Until next time, keep on learning. <laughs>